evening. We have another simply marvelous show for you today. I was going to say that I thought we had coordinated our outfits, uh, that it was matching, and you immediately ended my sentence with the word clashing. See, now I just I, don't understand fashion I or come color. Off as the scold who would allow you just to enjoy that we're both wearing blue because yours is more teal and mine is more sky blue. Look, I appreciate that you always want us to feel like we're on the same team, Robbie, and that's what counts. All right, that's good <laughs> enough for me. Okay, the show today has journalist and author Allison Young, who will discuss the latest developments about the potential COVID lab leak origin. She's also author of a great book on lab leaks in general. I highly recommend it. We'll also discuss more of special counsel John Durham's testimony from yesterday. But first, let's get into the big news. Yes, well, as of about 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, the U.S. Coast Guard estimates the missing Ocean Gate Titanic tour submersible is out of oxygen. Yesterday, search crews expanded the scope of the search and rescue mission on the surface. The area is about twice the size of Connecticut. Below the surface, it's two and a half miles deep. A remotely operated vehicle deployed by Canadian rescuers also researched the seafloor yesterday. However, with time all but running out, it's unclear how long the search and rescue mission will continue. A New York Times report confirmed the wife of Stockton Rush, the pilot of the missing sub and owner of its maker, OceanGate, is actually the great-great-granddaughter of two first-class passengers who died on the Titanic. A fictionalized version of the couple is even featured in the movie. They're, they're shown Embracing, embracing each other in bed as the water icy fills. waters enter the uh, the the cabin. So, obviously, no good news to report here. Um, I mean, as I said, it was going to be a, a a long shot is an understatement that they would find this vehicle, um, this uh, submarine, let alone with enough time with the oxygen. And we don't even know. Again, it could have been there was an explosion. The 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 thing is gone. That they, they yes, again, they, yes. They, they they they're not. There might not have been living people to find, even if it was found. And found and finding it was going to be like finding a needle in the vast ocean. Yeah, I mean, at this point, one almost wishes that it was a quicker mm -hmm. um, demise because some of the experts that have been weighing in on what the circumstances of a hypothetical rescue would be like, have pointed to the fact that it's very cold underwater, that they're likely in the dark, um, that they obviously haven't had food or water, that they only had a canister to right. urinate into, um, that obviously their oxygen, oxygen supply has been diminishing. The, the mood within the vessel, given the, the blame game that's likely to be thrown around, given that the, you know, the owner of this uh, Ocean Gate was, was in there, I, I would not have wanted to end Spend my time on Earth, on Earth that way. Right. But we, you know, we were unlikely to ever know it could have been much quicker than that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I suppose the search is going to continue, but I, I don't know that this submarine is ever going to be found. Or, is, you know, it could be found years from now yeah. to be found. Again, the wreckage of the Titanic took 50 years to find. Absolutely. And they knew roughly where it was. Yeah, what's interesting, I read that the the person who found the Titanic also found another historical uh, ship that had shrunk, uh, the Bismarck, and didn't disclose where the other ship was because he was so put off by the commercialization mm -hmm. of what happened with the Titanic. And it is interesting when you reflect on how there happens to be this connection between people who actually died on the Titanic and the people who are dying, or one of the people who are who is uh, in the the vessel currently. 
Is this a commentary on hubris of the wealthy, the way so much of the discourse on the internet has been about that, has been focused on, you know, the idea that it's ridiculous to pay $250,000 for a trip to the bottom of the ocean, and that it is hubristic to think that you can build your own handcrafted vessel without any certifications and engage in this very risky behavior, perhaps in part because you have so much money that you're not used to being told no or that you have an outsized sense of your own um, genius right. or something like that. I mean, right. I, I kind of said this. I, I think I didn't make argue my case particularly well when we talked about this yesterday, but I, I'm not really, I'm not one to yuck your yum. Mm -hmm. If it's your money and you want to spend this on an adventure of a lifetime, mm -hmm. it's not how I would choose to spend my time or my money. Mm -hmm. It's not how most people would do it, but that is your choice. Um, and also our, our, I mean, exploration in general over human history has been propelled by iconoclastic weirdos doing things contrary to the norms and expectations and safety of the time. That accounts for the discovery of the Americas. It certainly accounts for a lot of the Arctic discovery, Antarctic discovery, which was very dangerous. And many of those of expeditions, those paths. tons of yeah. lost, lost lives during those, uh, those, those endeavors, which were which were important and you know brought us to a better understanding of the globe, the world we occupy. So I don't want to be too condemning or mm. or that sort of thing. Now, again, you brought up all the you know the safety concerns and the liability, and that you know it certainly could be the case that this thing was poorly manufactured. And there were warnings. There was person speaking out. So maybe it's a different situation. But I'm not going to reflexively you know, shoot down someone's dream if that's how they want to spend their time. Again, I wouldn't do it. And also the Titanic, right, it is a, you know, it is a burial site. It is a, it's a memorial, yeah. a water memorial. Yeah. Um, you know, let, there is a, I would be inclined to just let the dead rest. Yeah. But. Well, entrepreneur, entrepreneur rather, Mario Knopfel says he hosted an eight-hour space on the site uh, discussing the Titanic sub with experts and friends of the passengers. And the most likely scenario from that conversation is that the hull of the submersible imploded due to the brittle carbon fiber material killing all five passengers within milliseconds. He also alleges that those who were in the Twitter space said this of the company's CEO, Stockton Rush. The CEO, CEO of the company, OceanGate, who was also the pilot, is a risk taker that has cut corners, most likely to make more money by cutting costs. Multiple reports by ex-employees, the CEO himself in past interviews, and third parties point to the company being frugal and cutting corners when it comes to safety, which the CEO did not take seriously. This means the submersible was likely of low quality, which we can assume is what led to the implosion or the mechanical Failure. Yeah, it's a lot of assumptions. Maybe that's the case. You know, I don't want to just assume that people well, we do know on social media are right. Is, there but, was reporting on yeah. the uh, one of the red flags was that the the window, the viewing window that was put into the craft. You know, the ostensible purpose is to go down there so you can literally see the Titanic as opposed to looking at pictures. And there were concerns about it not being the quality and type that would have been recommended by engineers for a vessel that's going to that depth. So there are these kind of in the view of experts, obvious structural failures uh, of the craft. And in retrospect, it almost seems like it was a ticking time bomb and only a matter of time until on one of these journeys to the bottom of the, of the ocean, they were unable to return. You know, one other aspect of the story that has really taken the internet by storm is the ongoing drama with the stepson of the, um, uh, the, the missing billionaire on the Titanic. 
Shortly after the craft went missing, he was tweeting from a Blink-182 concert, a classic uh, 90s, early aughts band, about how I, I'm sad, but he was also seemingly trying to leverage the tragedy that was befalling his family into like perks of the concert or, or something like that. It's been a real milkshake duck situation where he subsequently has battled with celebrities on the internet. N-words have been dropped. He's had a real interesting narrative arc over the course of the last 48 hours or yeah, so. Yeah, I've not been paying super close attention to this. Uh, it's wild and doesn't have yes. anything to do with anything, but uh, he's grieving in a very interesting and public way. Yeah, and, and another that. aspect of it, he apparently has had some criminal issues uh, after stalking women, um, and there's a, a story that his father and stepfather, his stepfather's wealth was used by the father to help get him out of jail and, and threatened to sue the prison where he was being held and, and then subsequently was released early on stalking charges. This is intersecting with some of the criminal justice issues we were talking about yesterday in an interesting way. So we could probably do a whole other segment on what's been going on with him. Of the crimes of the stepson of one of the passengers of the submarine that we will never see again. Correct, correct. So it's it's been a wild it's been a wild couple of days. If we have any updates, of course we will bring them to you tomorrow and we'll have more rising for you after this. We have some breaking news on the Ocean Gate sub-search. According to the U.S. Coast Guard, the Horizon Arctic's ROV discovered a debris field on the seafloor near the Titanic wreckage this morning. While it still remains uh, unknown, obviously, the fate of the submersible, experts say that their oxygen stores have likely run out by now if they were still alive. There's expected to be a press conference today at 3 p.m. about this latest discovery. Mm -hmm. This gives some credence to the theory that that's submersible imploded. As we mentioned earlier today, entrepreneur Mario Knopfel said he hosted an eight-hour space on Twitter discussing the Titanic sub with experts and friends of the passengers. And the most likely scenario from that conversation was that the hull of the submersible imploded due to the brittle carbon fiber material killing all five passengers within milliseconds. Obviously, tragic news for their families. In some ways, the quicker end sure. to this all might honestly have been a blessing of sorts compared with the drawn out suffocation in the cold and the dark and the and their own um you know uh right you know you know there's no bathroom on the boat uh so the, it, this is you know a tragic story either way but also a story of really gross uh incompetence and negligence it seems sure and you know, this is not, uh, we have to await the press conference to know more information. A debris field does not even necessarily mean this is the ship or has is from the ship, but um, we'll have to wait to hear more about that. Um, obviously, there's, I, I, there was already, there was always so little chance, I think, of finding the ship in time and intact and the passengers safe and then being able to rescue them was all really just extraordinarily unlikely. It would have taken an honest-to-God miracle. So, you know, now we're just trying to understand what did happen. Um, was there negligence involved? You know, what does this mean, et cetera? Uh, obviously, the families, you know, want to know for sure that it's, that it's over. Um, we're probably... Uh, bracing themselves yeah. for the worst, as seemed 
honestly, very likely from the beginning. Yeah. Well, we alluded to this in uh, the earlier segment on this, but haven't spoken specifically about one of the biggest vulnerabilities that are allegedly uh, on this vessel, which is this seven-inch acrylic window on the sub that was ostensibly the whole purpose of the trip was to go down and be able to see the Titanic in person, um, which so few people have actually done. But that was one of the area, areas in which the uh, OceanGate CEO, Stockton Rush, apparently cut corners. So apparently the window, since it wasn't the appropriate type, gets squeezed by the water pressure as it descends. And that, uh, and, and that is one of the, the major vulnerabilities in this particular vessel that, that's from reporting in the, in the Daily Mail. I yeah. Mean, yeah, I mean, it, again, I'm, you know, people are discussing this a lot on social media. I, it sounds like a debris field, right, means the, the, the vessel imploded and would have been an incredibly speedy end for the passengers, a very pain, they wouldn't have even been aware of it. It would have been yeah. instantaneous, which, as you said, is kind of the best case scenario. I mean, a another interesting development here is that it was announced that there, it, there's going to be a documentary airing today on the submersible tragedy. Oh, and, you know, people are people are saying, you know, you're you're already planning this documentary before we even know what the outcome is of this mm -hmm. whole event. Did they cut two separate endings in the possible event? They already made a documentary. They already about made a documentary. Here's what? reporting um, from Deadline. They were already planning one about this. No, I think that they just really saw the moment and the media moment, oh. quickie Titanic sub documentary set on British TV just hours after the onboard oh craft is expected to run out of oxygen. Channel 5 is shaking up its Thursday night television schedule with a live special report on Ocean Gate's Titan. Titanic yeah. sub lost at sea is set to air at 7 p.m. Thursday in Britain, hmm. which is like now. I mean, I guess so, is this so much a documentary as like a live news broadcast? But I guess it's not well, I, live. Well, my, my understanding is, I mean, of course, you mentioned the gentleman who had gone down in the sub and done the reporting on it, done, done a documentary on it David before Pogue. this happened, David Pogue. Yeah. And so I do think it's, it, it seems like to me like a kind of an extension of that project, but the the ending of it is this much more mm -hmm. macabre uh, voyage down to the bottom of the sea gone wrong. Yeah. Um, so there has been some criticism on about the choice to put something like this out so quickly. Is it exploitative? Is it in bad taste? Or, you know, is this just market forces are, doing what they do? People are drawn to these kinds of um, tragedies, ships, planes going missing. Obviously, the Titanic itself is perhaps the most famous of these kinds of stories and has, you know, entranced people for a hundred years, um, <laughs> leading to one of the, you know, best known, most popular, most watched movies of all time, most celebrated movies of all time, leading to so much continued interest that people do things like what the Titan sub did, take, you know, v voyages down to the very murky depths, uh, nearly as far down as you can possibly go in the ocean to, to see it. We're, we're a, curious species that is captivated by these kinds yeah. of, um, you know, the, the Malaysian airplane, too. Remember yeah, that? Yeah, for sure. That was, I was very interested to know what that happened. One of my favorite pieces of journalism I've ever read is the Atlantic's long piece on the ultimate fate 
of the Malaysian um, airplane where they, and the writer concludes that it was most likely the pilot who decided to kill everyone and crash it. Well, in some respects, this is another sort of a pilot error situation sure. um, because of the relationship between yeah. the pilot and the, uh, being the constructor uh, of the, the funder of this craft. The, the names of the missing explorers are Hamish Harding, Shadaza Dawood, his son Suleiman Dawood, Paul Henry Nagrule, and Stockton Rush, who has been the focus of so much of the criticism and conversation over the past 24 hours. He did something so. negligent. He didn't just put other people at risk. He put he put himself at risk of paying the ultimate price. Yeah, and so. including, I think there's been some mixed sympathies here because of the nature of this endeavor and the amount of money that these people spent. But I do think to the extent that there has been kind of uniform sympathy, it is for the 19-year-old Suleiman uh, Dawood, uh, who perhaps didn't, mm-hmm. wasn't in the same position to accept yeah, I mean, there's, some it's of the sad adults, when people die. The older people here. sympathy all around, no matter what. Uh, All right, that's all we have on that. We'll, of course, keep following this story. More rising right after this. The origins of the coronavirus pandemic has perplexed government uh, government scientists, the scientific community, and the public alike, but recent investigative reporting does uh, help confirm long-held suspicions that COVID may have come from a lab leak at Wuhan. And I went further in my radar yesterday to say that a lab leak is now the leading likely explanation for COVID-19's origins. But new reporting from the New York Times reveals that U.S. intelligence agencies are no closer to reaching a consensus on how the pandemic started. As we wait for the Biden administration to release declassified documents detailing uh, what started the spread, officials say there is no smoking gun. Here to dive deeper into this is investigative journalist who's written extensively about lab accidents, Allison Young, author of Pandora's Gamble, Lab Leaks, Pandemics, and the World at Risk. Welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to someone who is authoritatively written not just about this particular lab leak, but the problem more broadly with lab leaks. Um, First and foremost, what do you make of the government's position uh, that uh, they are unlikely to ever find a definitive smoking gun? And do you think that finding these patients zero is a smoking gun of sorts? I hope that we are able to find the origins of this pandemic. It is so important. And one of the things I found in researching Pandora's Gamble is that history is pretty instructive that over time, when lab accidents happen, labs go to extraordinary lengths to keep that information secret. Hmm. And one of the cases that I focus on in Pandora's Gamble involves an anthrax outbreak tied to a lab in the former Soviet Union. And it took 15 years for that case to be determined. Right. That is a fascinating case. It's actually the one when I heard about it, I read about it. It it was referenced in an article, you know, talking about potential lab leak of COVID. Because that's what caused me to think, oh, you know, I wondered, has this ever happened before? I don't, I, don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know anything about this. And then I read that, oh, actually, yes, <laughs> pathogens have escaped labs in the past. Um, you said there are, you know, it takes, it's taken a long time in many of those cases to understand what happens. Talk to us more about, in your research, um, the elaborate steps that the institutions involved, the, the scientific community, the governments in charge of those labs have taken to, you know, muddy the waters? 
One of the things the public doesn't realize is that accidents occur on a regular basis in biological research facilities. And the reality is, is that the people working in those facilities are human beings. They're going to have incidents where they splash infectious fluids on themselves, where equipment malfunctions, where an infected animal may bite them. There have been incidents where wastewater has been released from facilities, including here in the United States. And when these incidents occur, they routinely are shrouded in secrecy. And the labs that have these accidents often go to these great lengths to keep the information secret. So the Wall Street Journal has reported, uh, confirmed independent reports that these three scientists at the Wuhan lab um, contracted COVID or very similar to COVID symptoms in November uh, 2019, which is before the uh, outbreak at the wet market. Uh, the government obviously has not yet confirmed that intelligence or declassified it. It, it seems to me extraordinarily likely to be correct, although I guess there's still a world where that the report in the Wall Street Journal is is theoretically could be wrong. But is that if the government does confirm that or, or, or like fails to disprove it, I am having a hard time imagining a world where that's not the most likely origin for COVID. If they if they got sick before any known other outbreaks out in the world, and it was the very people doing the research you would most worry about having been the origin for COVID, if it can be confirmed that they did get sick, does, does not a lab leak become sort of a, maybe not definitively proven, but, but a more likely or, de, or a default assumption? There have been numerous media reports in the last couple of weeks citing unnamed intelligence sources saying that there were these three researchers tied to the Wuhan Institute of Virology who were involved with coronavirus research, who came down with unspecified symptoms that could be potentially seasonal illnesses like influenza, which would be circulating at the time, but also could be COVID-19. And it is absolutely instrumental that this information come out through direct government sources. One of the, the challenges throughout this entire COVID-19 uh, pandemic has been that little information has been released about the origins of COVID. And there has been this push to try to get information about what links the Wuhan Institute of Virology may have to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we are still waiting for the declassified intelligence that Congress unanimously said needed to be released. And President Biden signed the bill that it called for its release. Um, but we're now past deadline on that information coming out to the public. And do you have any theory of why that might be the case, that it hasn't been released yet? Are they, they're just a few days behind? You know, I keep hearing reports that it's about to come out, it's about to come out. And will they simply, you know, redact so much or, or instead release a report summarizing the intelligence they have instead of the actual intelligence? Those are all the questions I think that all of us are asking right now is what is going to be in, in those released documents? Is it going to provide us any new details? Will it be so vague as to not have uh, specific information? Uh, there has been some reporting, including a piece that you referenced in the New York Times that talks about there being no smoking gun, um, that the information um, you know, may not answer the questions that, that people are seeking answers to. Uh, but 
but I think that the legislation was clear that that specific pieces of information, especially about uh, these reportedly sick workers, is supposed to be included in, in what's released. So we can hope that we get some more details this week. Allison, you made reference to another lab leak incident where the smoking gun didn't come till 15 years later. There has, in this instance of the you know COVID-19 uh, pandemic, been a lot of discussion about how, well, if too much time elapses, we're just not going to know. We're just not going to know. So help us understand what kind of evidence can come forward 15 years down the line that right. is dispositive. What would the smoking gun ultimately look like? In the case that, that I referenced that was in the former Soviet Union, um, there had been an effort to, to claim that that outbreak of anthrax was tied to tainted black market meat that people had consumed. Mm. And what had happened over time is that there had been scientists and others who hid away evidence so that it could not be confiscated by the KGB. And only after the politics changed were they able to release that information. And, and it's also informative because some of the leading scientists in the United States who stood up at that time with that anthrax outbreak and said, you know, the evidence from our colleagues, our Russian, uh, uh, Russian colleagues are saying that this is a foodborne illness outbreak. It, it looks like that's what happened here. They ultimately changed their minds 15 years later as more of the documents and data that had been hidden away came forward. Yeah, that's very, very fascinating because one of the concerns here, obviously, is that if it is COVID was the result of a lab leak in Wuhan, specifically that patient zero having uh, Ben Hugh having done research that was being funded by the U.S., you know, the, the grants from NIH, uh, NIAID, et cetera, that it, similarly there will not be an incentive for the U.S. health officials to admit they're going to prefer every other explanation because if it's the lab leak, there's, there is in fact some blame, theoretically tremendous blame to be had by the U.S. officials as well. So can, should we be concerned that that's going to lead to something like a cover-up? Have you seen examples of that, you know, the, the bad, the malincentives of the investigators or even the U.S. government in, in previous lab leaks? One of the issues that, that I document in numerous case studies throughout Pandora's Gamble is the conflict of interest that occurs in the oversight of biological research labs is very fragmented. But where there are government agencies that are overseeing this research, they often are performing their own research or funding the research that they're overseeing. And there have been calls for a number of years that there needs to be in the United States um, some sort of an independent oversight body that, that looks at the safety of biological research. Mm. Well, thank you, Allison Young, so much for joining us. I encourage everyone to check out the book, which is Pandora's Gamble. Uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s candidacy seems to be proving a real challenge to President Biden's re-election bid. As conservative columnist for The New York Times, Brett Stevens points out, 
Many Americans are skeptical of RFK Jr. Many others are interested. In his most recent piece, he calls Kennedy a crank, adding, quote, his long-held anti-vaccine views sit poorly with most Democrats. He has said the CAA killed his uncle and possibly his father, that George W. Bush stole the 2004 election, and that COVID vaccines are Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci self-enrichment scheme. He repeats Kremlin propaganda points, like the notion that the war in Ukraine is actually a U.S. war against Russia. He has nice things to say about Tucker Carlson. But Stevens highlights that some are willing to overlook the candidate's controversial opinions. Voters' sentiments appear to reflect in recent polling that indicates RFK Jr.'s growing appeal may thwart Biden's re-election prospects. The surging candidate is polling at 20 percent, which is considerably less than Biden, but is going to potentially make uh, his re-election bid very difficult. Luring voters obviously will be a must for Biden. Uh, he has to count on every vote, but Hispanic and black voters could be a problem for him, as a New York Times article reports. A May survey showed that a mere 22 percent of Latino voters and 33 percent of black voters were aware of any specific thing President Biden has done in office to improve their lives. RFK Jr. also gave a major speech recently, and some of that uh, was put together in clips. Let's play it. Not today. Or are we going to remain stuck in a self-righteous story in which America is categorically good and our opponents are irredeemably evil? If we remain stuck there, so will every other nation. It's not only America that's falling in, falling into this simplistic good guy, bad guy thinking. That's the example we've set for everybody in the world. A wonder it's been replicated everywhere between Israel and Iran, between India and Pakistan, between Shia and Sunni, between Jew and Arab. It's tribalistic. Us versus them thinking is tearing us apart. These are the wages of war. But when we take the first step toward peace, we will become once again a true world leader, a moral leader, a moral authority. So that was from a foreign policy speech he gave in New Hampshire. He echoed a lot of themes. You know, Brett Stevens talked about them um, characterizing them one way in his article, um, negatively in his article, but talking about the U.S.'s role in international conflicts, having stirred the pot, having instigated various conflicts uh, for decades is part of what attracts many voters to uh, RFK Jr. They don't like the kind of black and white thinking that makes it difficult for us to reckon with our role in conflicts and then have a better possibility to actually remedying those conflicts. Right. I, I think it's not a coincidence that RFK Jr. is really taking off right now. Um, elites and experts have establishments, government, scientists, uh, foreign policy consensus. It has all embarrassed itself horribly in the last few years um, I, on, on foreign policy and on COVID in particular. What the normal, smart, expert people said was right uh, has not aged well at all. And so people who have who have railed against elites and the establishment and experts, um, do I think they're right about everything? No. But they're looking pretty good right now. And that yeah. includes people like, you know, on the right, like Tucker Carlson, uh, people on the left or ostensibly were at some point on the left, the, the anti-institutionalists, your Glenn Greenwalds, your Jimmy Dores, your Russell Brands, all those people, um, people who raised questions about what the scientific community was saying about COVID and the, uh, the foreign policy consensus was saying about um, Ukraine and the Middle East before that, those people just look embarrassingly wrong. Yeah, and so, and so a, a, a candidate who yeah. speaks to that, you might call him a crank, you might say he's a kook or he's crazy. 
maybe, I, and, and I, I, again, I do not agree with everything he says. He, I mean, he's running as a Democrat. I'm not a Democrat. But these fundamental questions that the, the supposedly sober, sane, expert people got wrong have created an opening yeah. for the outsiders who Absolutely. question them. 100%. I mean, what's so interesting about the way that uh, Brett Stevens characterized everything in this article is is that it's so out of step with what, like it or not, majorities of Americans believe. So I just Googled it real quick. Gallup says a majority of Americans still believe that JFK Jr. was killed in a conspiracy. Whether that means they think it's the CIA or somebody else, they don't think that the public narrative is an accurate one. And 70 percent of Americans want those documents that were supposed to be released in 2017 under Trump, still haven't been fully released. They want those documents because they are still skeptical of the mainstream story that's been put out there. To your point about vaccines, you know, Brett Stevens writes, oh, you know, he said that George, but uh, sorry, that the, the, the COVID vaccines are Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci self-enrichment scheme. Okay, well, we have reported and talked about on the show the extent to which there are built-in incentives um, to right. some of these uh, uh, um, uh, grants that, that allow uh, the WHO who work at the government to get so much get of its funding. The World of, Health Organization getting so much of its funding from the Gates Foundation. Right, but but also the fact that uh, people like Anthony Fauci are able to get a percentage sure. of the of the drugs that are right. end up being used in some of these government programs. And Kennedy has specifically talked about ending that conflict of interest and ending those kind of financial incentives. That's not. Hooey, that's not made up. You can think that those financial incentives aren't a problem, but he's not describing something that's not able to be substantiated. Uh, Stevens refers to the idea that the U.S. played a role in the Russia conflict, presumably, if you listen to RFK Jr., by expanding NATO eastward in a way that undermined our post-Cold War commitment not to do so. He calls that a Kremlin propaganda point. So to talk about a historical reality is a Kremlin propaganda point. Now, that's not to say, and RFK Jr. is very clear, that doesn't say, that's not to say that Russia was justified in invading Ukraine. Right. That's not to say that that is not an illegal war and that they're also not well, violating international law. he talks about the issue, law. he does so much throat clearing to make sure no one mistakes him for a, a sympathy for the Russian position or what Russia's doing right. because it's unconscionable. Right. So Stevens is illustrating, I think, really well on this point, in this, in this piece, how out of touch not RFK Jr. is, but mm -hmm. people in the chattering class like himself are, and how this is where the credibility starts to crumble. If you were going to write an article that on its face so obviously is unwilling to engage genuinely with the things that RFK Jr. Is, are saying, you don't have to agree with RFK Jr. again, but to characterize history as a Russian talking point to, to ignore the real issues of corruption and conflict of interest that exist in some of these revolving door government agencies is to say to the public, I just don't care about those issues. And the public is saying back to the establishment media, well, I just don't care about you. Right. I, I think the, the establishment's need to cast him as a uniquely crazy or dangerous figure is, is not at all persuasive to people because while he may get some things wrong, especially with the—you've brought up the technicalities of mercury being in vaccines. When we interviewed him, he brought up hydroxychloroquine and, chloroquine and ivermectin. You know, I, I am a perfectly open-minded person. I've looked at, you know, people who took this question very seriously, weighed all the studies. It does not look to me like ivermectin is, was doing a lot of good. It was wrong to cast it as a, a uniquely harmful, poisonous— yeah, Even Joe Rogan pushed back in their interview. Yeah, Joe Rogan's yeah. issue 
was being accused of taking a horse dewormer, right. but he wasn't defending the right. efficacy of the drug. So I don't, it, you know, if he's making the claim that was the way to go and yeah. there's a lot of definitive science showing that was helpful, I dispute that from, you know, having looked at read people who did look at all of those studies. So again, it, it's, a, it's a, certainly a disagreement. I have absolute disagreements with things he's saying. But to say he's, so let, let's say if we accept he's wrong on that, and I'm sure many people watching won't, but just, just bear with me for mm -hmm. a minute. He's wrong about that, fine. But why does that make him the most craziest, kookiest, dangerous person when the establishment science people have also been wrong about the efficacy of all of, of, of many of these right. things. And, and what they promised about the, the vaccines the didn't, didn't, didn't pan out. Put the science to the side. We're supposed to care more. The, the public is being told they're supposed to care more about someone being wrong about how their father and uncle were killed than a, a president and a presidential candidate who was wrong about the Iraq war. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's exactly that. Where, where, being, where if you're outside the mainstream, being wrong about something makes you a kook. But if you're in the mainstream, getting a fundamental policy question wrong that killed thousands or millions, millions of people yes. in, in, the, in the result of in the, really having to do with our Middle Eastern policy, yeah. or, or again, having potentially funded research, being in the establishment and having funded research that indirectly led to the entire pandemic in the first place, as we're now uh, learning is not proven but likely to be what happened, you're still, you know, you're not being portrayed as, you're not being run out of the establishment for being a kook and a mass murderer and like Dr. Frankenstein or something. No. It's just the people outside yeah, the, the establishment. When they get something wrong, yeah. it's, it's unforgivable, you're a kook. And yeah. that is a double standard that I think people are, have caught on to yeah. and they're fed up with. Absolutely. Mm. More rising right after this. Former NCAA swimmer Riley Gaines, who has competed against trans swimmer Leah Thomas, gave testimony at the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on protecting pride, defending the civil rights of LGBTQ plus Americans yesterday. She commented on what it means to be a feminist. Let's hear what some of what she had to say. Let me give you a chance to respond to something that Leah Thomas said recently, publicly. This, um, she said this publicly. They're using this quote now. They're using the guise of feminism, they meaning you, using the guise of feminism to sort of push transphobic beliefs, meaning you advocating for women, women's rights, is actually just a cover for transphobia. Do you want to respond to that? Feminism is not a fluid term. Um, the original and, and the meaning of what it means to be a feminist is to uphold, respect, honor, embrace, and celebrate women on our own physical ceilings, our own uniqueness. That term has not changed. Um, and what this really is is a, is a male mansplaining what it is to be a feminist, which I honestly think is pretty ironic, and it's something we've seen before. Democratic witnesses at the hearing, including Kelly Robinson, disputed Gaines' take. Let's take a listen. Women you and some that are short. that a biological male has a physical advantage in sports over a biological female? Not as a definitive statement. Give me an example. Well, no, I, I don't think... How, how, how many female members of the NBA do you see? Well, I can say that, you know, there's been this news article about men that think that they could beat Serena Williams in tennis, right? That they think that they could actually score a point on her. Um, and it's just not the case. She is stronger than that. What's your experience, Ben? Male, female. Both Serena and Venus lost to the 203rd ranked male tennis player, which they're phenoms for women. Um, my experience, my husband, he swam at University of Kentucky as well. In terms of accolades and in terms of 
national ranking. I was a much better swimmer than him. Um, he could kick my butt any day of the week without trying. Yeah, so... I think she really, Riley Gaines, really successfully pushed yeah. back on that other guest there who yeah. was saying, oh, you know, Serena Williams is, like, again, very talented, but in the realm of competitive sports, when you're at this level of competition, yeah. look, we have to be honest that pretty stark biological-based differences emerge. So here's the problem. The whole point of segregated sports, sex-segregated sports, is segregating on the basis of sex and broadly distributed, lots of variation within groups, obviously, but right. differences between se sexual achievement in sports that are so stark that in order to give women an opportunity to compete, a choice was made to segregate the sports um, so that women, you know, cis women didn't have to compete against cis men. To the extent that there is an effort to be inclusive and allow trans women to play sports and, and compete, you are going to have to fundamentally challenge the, the fundamental uh, presumption of why we have uh, sex-segregated sports the, to begin with. And the purpose of that was feminist to enable cis women to have an opportunity to even participate in sports. Right. Now, I do think that Riley Gaines could not be more wrong about the definition of feminism really? and that, in fact, it's not fluid. Feminism is so fluid, in fact, that various different kinds of feminism over periods of time are described as waves of feminism. That's how fluid <laughs> the thing is. It's literally described as a, as a kind of water. Um, now, I'm not, this is not a substantive argument. Like, I, I, I think that there are, there's a, a good case to be made that the reason that we have Title IX, and as I've said before, just now, the whole reason of, of having sex-segregated sports is to give cis women an opportunity to compete. But I do think that her definition of feminism was completely made up, um, and that feminism is more accurately described as an equality movement, not women fighting against their own metrics or whatever she said, oh, but, but that we should be ha treated equally, have the same opportunities of, as men. Now, I think Title IX in separate women's sports was done to that end, and this is, a real, I think, a genuine, dif genuinely difficult issue, which is how do you allow trans people to compete in sports and not exclude them on the basis of uh, an antipathy toward trans people while still maintaining the integrity of whatever that initial goal was to the extent that you think that initial goal is still valuable. Right. I, I think she's invoking feminism and, in, you know, invoking Title IX to, to um, dispute that, you know, what is the, 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 the inclusion of trans, trans women, trans athletes in competitive sports is, is enhancing of feminism. I, she's making the point, right, that it, from her perspective, it's, it's, um, up against the goals of feminism because it's it would erase the category of not allow uh, women to um, to compete fairly against just other women when we're bringing in trans women to the category. It seems like the way to solve this is you just need a separate you need a separate um, league or team or competition for trans individuals or in, or you have them. Like that at competitive level, if it's at like the non like the little kids, I know you've you know you've raised it. Like, does it really matter for the very little kids? No, but at the competitive level of sports, it is about achievement. Like we you know we keep score for a reason, right? It, people's futures and scholarships and and opportunities you know comes from that. And if you want to protect that category at all, and I think most people do, you know the, you're you're going to have to make some accommodation that's not just sticking them on the girls' team. 
Yeah, so there have been other areas of life where people have decided that the gender segregation is not, or the sex segregation is, is um, no longer valuable, let's say. Mm -hmm. The Boy Scouts, you know, and letting girls in, and, and those have obviously been controversial as well. There was a big brouhaha in college about whether these male, we call them final clubs, not frats, but like these, whether they're gonna gender mm -hmm. segregate. And the younger generation seems to be really open to those kinds of things in a way that even I think my cohort at school was not necessarily. There was this idea that something intrinsically in the space was gonna be lost. Um, but, you know. But that seems so different but this from is, this. This is different I mean, because there are, there's something that's rooted and the Democratic witness really, try, you know, tried to say like, oh, well, you know, what does it really matter? You know, some women can compete against men. So, like that is true, but it is the it is an extreme yeah. exception. It, it is. It's disappointing because I sometimes feel like this is the Republicans have identified, and we talked to a polling expert, what a losing issue this is for yeah. trans advocacy. And at a time when there are literally hundreds of bills that are, are trying to substance, substantively strip the rights of trans people to like make medical decisions on their own, adults included, to make medical decisions on their own, dress the way they want, perform in drag, do a classic Shakespeare play, it feels very frustrating for so much of the uh, energy to be taken up on this subject. However, that is always going to continue to be the case as long as you get the kind of anemic defenses that um, uh, Miss Kelly, Kelly Robinson there, uh, gave on that panel. Right. Yeah, I, I've mentioned before that I used to coach um, track for uh, middle school uh, when I still lived in Michigan, and it's all it's co-ed up through, um, I mean, the school was co-ed, it was through eighth grade, and then th this was Catholic school, and then it's there's a boys' school and a girls' school. And, you know, up through sixth, seventh, eighth grade, the, many, the, the, the female and the male athletes are fairly competitive with one another, um, but then, like, around puberty, like, there becomes a pretty stark and immediate separation in terms of ability, where it, just, it would be ludicrous to have them yeah. still competing against each other. I also think other. there's some conversation to be had about the role of, you know, how long have you been transitioning? Are your hormone, hormone levels, like, within the realm of what a cis woman's would be? The Olympics has gone that route and said that, basically, if we biologically, for what it, you were, for, I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but if, if kind of physically you're getting to a point where the advantages that would come with having gone through male puberty are stripped from you because of your transition, then maybe then the playing fields are leveled again and you're able to compete. In some of these examples of trans women competing against cis women, the advantages are grossly overstated, especially when they have actually been transitioning for a period of time. And while they might be better, perform better than they did when they were competing against cis men, they are nowhere near the top of where uh, cis women are competitively. Mm. Um, Gaines also responded to Senator Josh Hawley's questioning on the quote, surprise of finding a biological man in her locker room. You were talking about just the incredible surprise, shall I say, to put it gently, of finding a biological man, a six foot four biological man in your locker room and having to accept that without being asked about it, without being told about it even. What was that like for you? Tell us about that. I, again, we only became aware we would be undressing next to a man was when we had to see a man undressing while we were simultaneously undressing. And so I immediately left the locker room and I went up to one of the officials on the pool deck and I said, what are the guidelines to allow a man into our locker room? I know the guidelines for the competition, but what are the guidelines for the locker room? And he so nonchalantly said back, oh, we actually got around this by making locker rooms unisex. 
And so I'm thinking to myself in these brief moments, first and foremost, you just admitted this is a male by acknowledging how you had to change your rules to make the locker rooms unisex. What message does this send to women, to young girls who are denied of these opportunities? So easily their rights to privacy and safety thrown out of the window to protect a small population, protect one group as long as they're happy. What about us? I don't think it's a safety issue, and I think that she knows it's not a safety issue. There it's are a comfort issue. Sure, but she made it into a safety issue, which I think is a really bad faith argument and is why so many people are saying that she is not someone who's genuinely interested in the competitive aspect of it, but that this is rooted in bigotry. And I think that she would make a better case for herself if she stopped making that kind of an argument. Now, the comfort issue, you know, it's perfectly legitimate. If you don't want to change in front of all kinds of people, you don't have to change in front of all kinds of people. I don't like changing in front of everybody. I was one of those kids who was changing in the stall <laughs> in middle school and high school, and that's what it was. And it had nothing to do with the gender of the people that I was changing around. But I don't I think, think it's... Well, go ahead. I think a lot of workplaces, et cetera, have moved to gender-neutral kind of Allie McBeal-style bathrooms. People have mixed feelings about it. I, I don't know. I don't know, and I think that that's a completely separate issue. And if they want to have separate bathrooms where cis women can change without trans women being around, or just have indi more individualized privacy options for everybody who's competing in these spaces, or make the whole thing co-ed, if that gets around the problem and all of those those kind of divisions are regressive anyway, then I think a lot of those those can be those issues can be worked out. But that seems to be a separate. A separate issue. For I agree it's a separate issue, and I don't really think it's about safety, but I don't think it's bigotry to be uncomfortable if you're Riley Gaines changing in front of no, someone like me. No, you know, I do think it's bigotry to, you know, Elon Musk made it, a, said it's a slur to call people cis on the internet yesterday. Well, that was kind of silly. I think it's also bigotry. If, if we're going to live in that world, then it most certainly is bigotry to intentionally um, misgender somebody the way that Gaines repeatedly did in this clip. I'm respecting Gaines's pronouns. I'm not saying this dude Gaines is, you know, testifying mm -hmm. at said hearing. You know, she knows how that's going to be received, and that feels like a, a dog whistle. And it, I think, it really diminishes her credibility when I think there are really difficult questions to be answered about how to handle the biological advantages that cis men, uh, trans women, and cis men. They are difficult towards. questions, and I, I would also be for just greater um, privacy in locker rooms, especially at the you know, K through 12. Level. Individual stalls for everybody. Aesop products in the bathroom. <laughs> what Aesop products? <laughs> They're just fancy soaps. Fancy soaps. <laughs> It'll make everybody happy. I, I use the Australian, the Aussie shampoo and conditioner. Ooh. Is that a we good need one? to talk about that it's because not a good they, idea. they leave a residue. They feel good. And it's like a good conditioner for the short term, but it's not good for the long term health of your head mm. here. Allegedly, don't sue us, Aussie. <laughs> All right. Well, Thomas told Good Morning America last May that trans women are not a threat to women's sports. Trans people don't transition for athletics. We transition to be happy and authentic and our true selves. We'll have more rising right after this. Department of Justice Special Counsel John Durham testified in front of the House Judiciary Committee yesterday about reporting on the FBI's Russia investigation and the 2016 presidential election. Let's hear some more of what he had to say in his opening statement. As our report details, the FBI was uh, too willing to accept and use politically funded and uncorroborated uh, opposition research such as the Steele dossier. The FBI relied on the dossier and FISA applications, 
knowing there was a likely um, material originating from a political campaign, a political opponent. It did so even after the President of the United States, the FBI and CIA directors and others received briefings about intelligence suggesting that there was a Clinton campaign plan underway to stir up a scandal tying Trump to Russia. The accuracy of the intelligence was uncertain at the time, but the FBI failed to analyze or even assess the implications of the intelligence in any meaningful way. When the FBI learned that the primary source of information for the Steele dossier, which was basically the guts of the narrative about there being a well-coordinated um, uh, conspiracy involving Trump and the Russians, when they learned that uh, Danchenko was the um, uh, primary subsource uh, for those reports, it was at a time when the FBI already knew that Danchenko himself had previously been the suspect of an FBI espionage investigation. He was suspected of being a Russian asset. He also had this to say about the matter. Although our work exposed uh, deep concerns um, concerning facts about the conduct of these investigations, our report should not be read to suggest in any way that Russian election interference was not a significant threat. It was. <laughs> Nor should it be read to suggest that the investigation, um, the investigative authorities at issue uh, are no longer serve important law enforcement and national security interests. They do. So there was, uh, so John Durham is getting some criticism in a lot of directions. Um, like I said, I, I think he brought a lot to the table there, exposing further how the Steele dossier was utterly garbage, how the FISA warrant surveillance of Trump campaign aide uh, Carter Page was totally inappropriate and contrary to proper FBI procedure. Um, so I think this is useful. It doesn't go—so uh, from the Democratic perspective, it was—you uh, know, they're mad that he's calling into question their precious little darlings in the FBI. How dare he, you know, <laughs> tie himself to Trump? There was, like, a vague kind of th light threat from um, Steve Cohen saying, you know, you're tying yourself to Trump. Your reputation is over. It was— Totally embarrassing, but from the conservative standpoint or the you know the the, the right wing perspective, um, I think there's some frustration that he uh, you know he, that he didn't go further. Um, also, I'm seeing some criticism of him because he did substantiate that in in his view, um, Russian forces did attempt to interfere in the election, uh, which is even too much of an admission for some people. Um, I, I think it. Is true that that Russia attempted to interfere in our election? You don't need to. You don't have to overplay that. We also, the U.S. has tried to interfere in other people's elections. Russia's efforts did not change the outcome, and they were not uh, were a level of collusion yeah. with uh, formal collusion with the Trump campaign was not proven. And then far too much was made about like the social media stuff, the bots, that kind of stuff. They did try. It just. It was a pathetic effort that didn't change anything and has been overly relied on by the mainstream media as an explanation of what went wrong. Yeah. But you don't have to you don't have to like deny that they even tried. They did try. Yeah, liberals are, you know, it seems like the the frustration is that he seemed some of the questions he was asked and the answers that he gave indicated to them that he was not as knowledgeable about potential paths for collusion as he maybe should have been. And in, in their view, it's evidence that he did not 
appropriately investigate those areas because if you had, you would be able to ask questions better. So answer the questions better, rather. So um, Jonathan Chait wrote a piece in New York Magazine um, that starts, uh, you know, former special counsel John Durham, who tried and utterly failed to prove that the Russian investigation was a vast anti-Trump conspiracy, testified Wednesday before the House about his work. Durham's hearing uh, interestingly revealed a possible explanation for why he threw away a sterling reputation to work with William Barr, fruitlessly pursuing a right-wing conspiracy theory. The man seems to have become so hopelessly brain-poisoned by Fox News, he has lost all touch with facts outside of the Republican information bubble. And he says he seemed to be unaware of the major factual elements of the alliance between the Trump campaign in Russia, and that this came out in the course of the exchange. Specifically, there was some line of questioning by Eric Swalwell about how, quote, Trump tried and concealed from the public a real estate deal he was thinking in Moscow. This was uh, described in the Mueller report, and Durham replied during the exchange, I don't know anything about that. When Adam Schiff asked Durham if the Russians released stolen information through cutouts, he replied, I'm not sure. Schiff responded, the answer is yes, to which Durham responded, in your mind, it is yes. And those kinds of exchanges to Democrats actually confirms not that Durham researched and didn't find anything about any evidence of collusion, but that the research that he did, the investigation that he did, must have been anemic, useless shallow and potentially politically motivated. Yeah, I, I look, I, I like some of Jonathan Chait's writing on other subjects. Um, I don't think he's at all persuasive here. Um, you know, again, it, it is the, it is not that there was no inappropriate behavior by Russia, and it is certainly not the case that Trump has no inappropriate financial ties with other with foreign governments, he certainly does, uh, including with I mean, Jared Kushner and the Saudi government. Um, this kind of corruption is routine in politics, may, may also be a factor in the Biden family vis-a-vis -vis Hunter Biden and various entanglements he has, but I, you know, I don't want to what about this. The interest is not that, like, it's not that Trump's squeaky clean, it's that the intelligence community and the mainstream media overemphasized and overpromised a narrative mm -hmm. of that, that the election was stolen by Russia that is just utter nonsense. That yeah. it, you know, James Clapper, former director of national intelligence, who has lied you know, in front of Congress about the pervasiveness of, of uh, warrantless surveillance on American citizens, said that Russia had more to do with Hillary Clinton losing than Trump did. That, that it was all, like, that we've been mind-controlled, that mm -hmm. we're all Manchurian candidates or something. And, the, and again, it's especially the social media stuff. The way they talked about how necessary the Russian bots and Russian troll farms were to the equation, the Cambridge Analytica, mm -hmm. all that stuff um, was hyperbolic and, uh, frankly, conspiratorial and utterly sure. unpersuasive. Yeah, I, I totally get that, Robbie. But let me ask you about this, because, I mean, I think this cuts both ways. Jonathan Chait, in this article, he makes the point that uh, Schiff asked Durham if he knew that hours after Trump publicly asked Russia to find Hillary Clinton's State Department emails and release them, Russian hackers made an attempt to hack Clinton's emails. And Durham replied, if that happened, I'm not aware of that. Mm -hmm. Now, I was hardly scouring the press for news about the ways that Hillary Clinton was being treated unfairly in 2016. However, that was very big news. It was everywhere. And 
I mean, does it say something? And it doesn't necessarily mean, by the way, that there's actually collusion between Donald Trump and Russia for mm -hmm. him to be like, he's Trump. That's the kind of thing he says, hey, Russia, go attack my enemy. But right. That doesn't mean there's actual collusion there, right? But, I mean, it, it does strike me as odd that someone who was tasked with literally investigating this very thing would be either ignorant of major news events related to the investigation or would claim ignorance in the context of this hearing. I mean, does that strike you as an as a weird choice? I, maybe he, he just meant that it was outside. He thought it was outside the purview of what he was looking at because it was not. It, it was, again, you can say it was morally reprehensible or dubious for Trump to make that statement. Sure. Was it, it was not, it was not a, it didn't, it can't be, it's not criminal, it's not, it, it, again, voters can weigh him saying that and choose not to make him president, but ultimately it's on them to do that. The, the secret cabal of, I mean, I mean it's, it starts to sound like what Trump himself said about the 2020 election, that you know, it was stolen because there's sacks of votes that didn't make it to the right place and blah, 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 and sure. have you looked at through the vote? It, like it's, 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 it's that kind of nothing. conspiracy. I, I, think, I think this is maybe just an optics issue because I don't think that Trump tweeting, hey, Russia, go get my enemy, or um, <laughs> Come again, get your boy. <laughs> Come get your girl. <laughs> or, or Schiff, you know, you know, Schiff asked Durham if he knew that, he was aware that Trump, uh, Trump's campaign manager uh, passed on polling data uh, to a Russian intelligence agent um, during the campaign, you know, and, and Durham replied, you may be getting beyond the depth of my knowledge. Or, you know, you know, that, that kind of, that he, uh, Trump mentioned Hillary's, um, uh, just just brought the stuff up right. again and again during the campaign. I, I think that there might be some pushback from Durham saying, well, that stuff is superficial and that wasn't what the investigation was about. And I'm not going to, Democrats have been trying to use some of those things to prove collusion. And obviously that stuff doesn't prove collusion. So I'm not going to kind of dignify it with a response in the context of this hearing. But I do think that answering, I don't really read the newspapers and listen to the news. You may be getting beyond the depth of my knowledge, et cetera, is offering him credibility as people are looking to see if they should have faith and credit in the investigation that he undertook. Well, tell us what you think in the comments on this subject, and we'll have more Rising right after this. Tensions between Republican representatives Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene came to a head on the House floor as Greene called Boebert, quote, a little which with a B, amid frustration at the Colorado Republicans' move to try and force a vote on impeaching President Biden. Now, during votes Wednesday afternoon, Boebert approached Green over a statement she made earlier in the day for critiquing her move to force an impeachment vote, according to the Daily Beast. Here's a little bit of that video. You can see the interaction here. Now, though it's inaudible, C-SPAN's camera caught the interaction. Both were shooed from the middle of the House Floor. According to the Daily Beast, the battle between the two of MAGA's biggest stars popped off after Bober confronted Green on the House floor about comments Green made about her. The discord between the two first started months ago over their competing resolutions to impeach President Joe Biden. So, so like the genesis of the fight is 
Stop trying to impeach Joe Biden. I'm trying to impeach Joe exactly. Biden. You get on board with my effort to impeach exactly. Joe Biden. Exactly. So Marjorie Taylor Greene is accusing Lauren Boebert of basically usurping her, you know, yeah. long, long plans, long held plans, public plans to have these, artic these articles of impeachment because specifically Lauren Boebert needs to do fundraising. Right. It's, and that's the main thing here. This is all a cynical fundraising tactic. Neither of them are going to successfully impeach Joe Biden. But they like to send out fundraisers that say, look at us, you know, fighting to do that, to do just that, get rid of Joe Biden, donate here. Um, Honestly, I, I, like I, this is not a very flattering, really, situation for either of them, including because it's it's clear that they are both upset at each other for for the it's it's a grift that both are doing and only one wants to do. Um, I yeah. mean, also th there is some you know alliance differences. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, as I've mentioned many times, is uh, much closer to Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. Um, he defended her, you know, back when she was coming under so much media criticism for having said, you know, the, the Jewish space lasers or the things she was brought up in her past. Um, McCarthy really had her back, and she's been very loyal to him. You know, and she's been trying to kind of convince the MAGA base that no, he is actually. He he gets it. He understands he should be speaker. Um, Bobert was with Ga Matt Gates in being totally opposed to mm -hmm. this. You know, tried to um, hold it up. There, there was, I think, a lot of acrimony between them over how many votes it took. Um, I mean, this is honestly starting to operate or resemble reality TV or like the. Well, Desperate there was House even a bathroom fight apparently back in January that the Daily Beast reported on between the two women. Green at that point allegedly confronted Bobert in the women's bathroom off the House floor, accusing her of being disloyal to McCarthy, to your point, whom Bobert was refusing to, to support for speaker. She said allegedly, quote, you were OK taking millions of dollars from McCarthy, but you refused to vote for him for speaker, Lauren. Um, and of course, the exchange on the floor that we are, you know, are looking at video of right now, what was said has been corroborated by several witnesses, um, including, you know, conservative witnesses who say that, yes, she called her a little B-I-T-C-H. Well, and then Semaphore confirmed it. Yes. Uh, the, the outlet, the news outlet mm -hmm. Semaphore spoke to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said, um, she yes, I called her that. She has genuinely been a nasty little bitch to me. <laughs> this is Marjorie Taylor Greene yeah. telling a news outlet that she said this. She uh, asked whether there was any chance the two would reconcile after the confrontation. Marjorie Taylor Greene said, "Absolutely mm. not." So this is a uh, you know they 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 are they are enemies. They're gonna. I mean, this is. <laughs> There's only one lane. There's, 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 this town isn't big enough for two fierce MAGA, female, female MAGA stars. fighters. I mean, although it is interesting, I think in the context of all of the McCarthy Michigas earlier this year, the liberal media was struggling to identify how there could be different factions within the so-called MAGA world because they don't have a very sophisticated understanding of the dynamics at play within said world. So, Nailed it. Exactly. Yeah. Like, superficially, you know, there are two people who generally want to impeach Donald Trump, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. But this, this uh, interesting kind of like um, McCarthy being seen as uh, too establishment, too insidery, not fiery enough um, for someone like Bobert, who's yeah really committed and out there, versus Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's positioning herself a little bit differently. It just completely escaped the notice of the media, who basically just framed that whole escapade as, look at how wonderful the Democrats are 
for standing together behind uh, uh, mm -hmm. um, Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, and no critique at all of the squad for failing to use the similar opportunity two years ago to get power for the left or anything like that. It was a very flat version of the discourse. I mean, there are all these factions on the Republican side. The Republican Party, both in Congress and then the broader conservative movement, is, um, is all over the place. It's still working through some real ideological differences, mm -hmm. differences of, of personality, mm -hmm. differences of priorities, and that you know that really emerged during the, the speaker and, and these, fight. The, these allegiances are interesting. So Byron Donalds, during the speaker fight, was one of the people who was holding up the votes for Kevin McCarthy. He was one of the people right. that was the alternate voting choice for folks right. who were wanting to do Although he didn't put himself wanna... forward as that. They, the opposition on one of the votes chose him. Sure, but he, he spoke to press yeah. a great deal. I think he came onto the national stage in a big way through Certainly. all of the media that he did around that that effort to extract more from uh, uh, McCarthy for this wing of the Freedom Caucus. In this scenario, however, he disagreed with Boebert's decision to force a vote so quickly on impeachment, saying, we do have a process of doing things. Right. This is all from the Daily Beast article. Impeachment is at such a high level that you know there should be some process for that. So changing winds, changing allegiances, not clear exactly what this is all about. Well, By Byron Donalds has done himself very well. I, th I think this is a name that is um, rising. I thought he did a great—hey, that's the name of our show. <laughs> I thought he did a great uh, job after the Trump CNN town hall. He was the, the you know, conservative political figure that mm -hmm. was on the panel to discuss it. Mm -hmm. um, honestly, I thought he did a better job than Trump himself <laughs> in, you know, pivoting away from unfriendly sure. gr ground and just, you know, saying this is the agenda. It's what we should be doing. It's great. Biden's terrible. Um, he's uh, he's a he's going to be a, a player in all this, I think. I think yeah, he, I think he's making sure. it. Um, he, he's on good, solid ground with real conservative people, and it also clearly has some esteem from other people in the House that he was selected as the rallying point. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, more so than Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert. He's yeah, really, and, and Lauren um, Boebert, remember, she narrowly won re-election by, what, 500 votes or so? Narrowly. So I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene's statements about her needing the fundraising money are probably on point, you know, they all have, a, I think, a shared interest in maintaining control of the House. And I would, you, you would yeah. think that she would want to also have uh, Boebert stay in that seat. I mean, there's really a problem in conservative political fundraising. And maybe, and I'm sure there's probably an equivalent problem in Democratic fundraising. I'm just, so I'm not like trying to say this is only a problem on the right. I'm just more familiar with it because I get more fundraising emails from, you know, I've been in conservative media circles, so I have a better understanding of how Republican figures raise sure. money. And there's just so much, uh, honestly, um, kind of, you know, it's on the level of like I, a Nigerian prince needs your social security <laughs> number to harvest the blood diamond or something. Uh, of of you know we're we're gonna the, we're gonna invalidate the election results or we're gonna restore President Trump. All you have to do is donate this money. Like claims that are not, or sometimes media figures. I won't name them, but they'll send out you know join join me to help us defend President Trump. But if you look very closely, like ninety nine dollars are going to this person and one dollar mm -hmm. is going to some Trump thing. Mm -hmm. Trump himself has done this. Remember when he I, I called him out for uh, and others did as well for trying to do fundraisers for uh, Blake Masters, the Arizona mm -hmm. Republican Senate candidate, mm -hmm. where if you click the expand window, you see that donating here 90% of the money goes to Trump. Mm -hmm. The rest goes to Blake Masters. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of 
scamminess in Republican political fundraising these days that is not good, but I'm sure there is a grift in Democratic circles I'm, as well. I'm sure there is. I am not on very many Democratic fundraising emails. I mean, I have given a grand total <laughs> of <point>. zero dollars <laughs> to, uh, to either party over the years, but for some yeah. reason, um, I keep getting them. All right, Bree. Well, this week actually marks the two-year anniversary of me. Oh, of me hosting this show. It's been a wild ride, <laughs> and I can't wait for more. It it feels like it was just the other day that I started out here, but uh, I can't believe it's been over a year yeah. for me. You know, Robbie, time really does fly when you're having as much fun as we do. How about that? <laughs> we'll have more rising right after this. A team of researchers, including Harvard astronomer Avi Loeb, may have just found a trace of an interstellar object in the ocean, which Loeb believes could have alien origins. And he joins us now to discuss this. Welcome, Dr. Loeb. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Yeah, great to have you join us. So please uh, give us more detail. Describe your work and what you hope to have found. Well, it's a very challenging task. Uh, we uh, followed on data about a meteor that uh, landed about uh, uh, 50 miles away from the coast of Papua New Guinea in 2014. And uh, when analyzing it, it became clear that it came from outside the solar system. It was moving too fast to be bound to the sun. And it had material strength that was tougher than iron. And so that raised the possibility that it may be artificial in origin, technological, a spacecraft, just like uh, New Horizons that we sent out uh, that will go to interstellar space and imagine it colliding with an exoplanet like the Earth and appearing as a meteor. Uh, to find this out, it's not just a hypothetical question. We can actually go to the Pacific Ocean and search for it. And that's what we did. And it's a very challenging task because uh, we're looking for um, fragments uh, that were left behind from the fireball, the explosion of this meteor, and they can be a fraction of a millimeter inside, roughly the size of a, the head of a pin. And just imagine they're sitting on the ocean floor at a depth of uh, about a mile, and we are trying to find them. And uh, for that, we are using a sled with magnets on it, and we are assuming that uh, these uh, small uh, droplets that melted off the surface of the object when it entered the atmosphere and burned up, uh, those droplets uh, would be attracted to the magnet. And so we were sort of moving the sled back and forth across uh, a region of uh, about 10 miles. And uh, amazingly enough, we found the needle in the ocean. So what, tell us what you found and why there is is some indication or why you suspect that it might be interstellar in origin. And, and are, is what you're saying, not just that it's interstellar in origin in, insofar as it came from outside of the solar system, but that it is evidence of intelligent design? Well, um, so first about the interstellar origin, that became clear from the high speed of the meteor. Mm -hmm. uh, and we discovered it uh, based on government data. And then the U.S. Space Command issued the letter to NASA where it confirmed that the 99.999% that indeed this object was moving 
uh, too fast to be bound to the sun, that it came from outside the solar system. And moreover, they released data about the fireball that allowed us to infer that it's tougher than all the space rocks that were identified by NASA over the past decade, 272 of them. So it was made of very unusual material. And that uh, led me to initiate this uh, expedition. And we have an exceptional team of uh, researchers and uh, support staff that allowed us to build this machinery that we are using well, to find those uh, fragments that were left behind. And now we can actually look at the materials that we recovered. And um, amazingly enough, we found the, uh, basically what is called the spherols. These are particles that are spherical, like perfect spheres made of metal. And we can put them into a, 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 what is called an X-ray fluorescence uh, analyzer that allows us to infer the composition. And the composition appears to be different than uh, uh, commercial uh, metals that we use here on Earth, uh, anything um, that humans produce. But it's also different from asteroids, from rocks that uh, previously were analyzed. And that makes, first of all, it, it implies that perhaps indeed uh, the it was it originated from a completely different environment. And moreover, perhaps it was manufactured uh, in a uh, artificial way, uh, technologically. And, you know, that would be the first time, first of all, the first time that an interstellar object was analyzed by humans. You know, we can hold it in our hand, the materials. Hmm. Uh, we retrieve them from the ocean. And the ocean is a perfect uh, museum to collect those things because uh, they do not get covered. If it fell in the Sahara de Desert, for example, uh, it would have been covered by dust uh, uh, over the past decade. We wouldn't find it. And so we're lucky on many fronts, also in terms of those small particles. You know, it took us a while to find them uh, because they were embedded in uh, volcanic ash that uh, basically covers the uh, entire surface of the ocean floor. And, uh, and so we had to, uh, you know, go with tweezers and isolate them But after looking at them uh, through microscopes. And, you know, as of now, we have 11 of them. It's qu they are quite remarkable. You can see images of them that I put on uh, my blog uh, on medium.com. So if you just search for mm -hmm. Avi Loeb at medium.com. In fact, I just, just a half an hour ago, I showed a, a images of the last two that we discovered. Uh, but before that, there were nine others. And they they are quite remarkable. I mean, they're tiny, the size of remarkable. the head of a pin. And these are the type of droplets you get from heating of any meteor that enters the atmosphere. But in this case, the meteor is very special, both in composition and in speed. It actually moved outside the solar system faster than 95% of all the stars near the sun. And that raises the possibility that it, it had some artificial propulsion. Why would it move so fast, even relative to stars near the sun? And why would be, it be made of materials that are far tougher than, than iron? Hmm. And so now we, we have the materials. I, and I plan to bring them back to the Harvard College Observatory, where we have access to exceptional instruments. We can't have them here on the boat. Uh, we have some preliminary analysis. But once we analyze them, uh, you know, uh, there we can yeah. uh, quite conclusively 
figure out first that this object was interstellar because we might find isotopes that you don't see in uh, uh, solar system objects. But moreover, we might uh, figure out that it's actually technological in origin. Uh, once again, because it's made of uh, some alloy that uh, does hmm. not appear in nature. Yeah, well, speaking of the boat, I think we would love uh, to get a uh, quick tour. And, and also, you know, many of those who follow um, sightings of UFOs have noticed a possible link between large bodies of waters like ocean to sightings of UAPs or UFOs. Do you think it's possible that, you know, there is alien life in, in the oceans, possibly traveling through larger bodies of water? No, the, the way I interpret this is, uh, you can think of Voyager, New Horizons, Pioneer that we launched into space. These will go into the interstellar space. And, mm -hmm. you know, in a billion years, functional anymore. So they will collide with a planet like the Earth um, and just burn up in the atmosphere. And perhaps the core of those spacecraft will end up at the ocean floor. And so, in fact, we might be searching for the, whatever is left behind. And in my last class at Harvard, I asked the students, uh, if we find a gadget, uh, should we press a button? Would you press a button? <laughs> and uh, half of the class said, no way. I'm worried about the consequences. Half of the class said, I'm actually quite curious to figure out what will oh happen. Boy. Maybe it's GPT-100. Uh, and I am very reserved. I will not try to do You shouldn't <laughs> worry because I first will bring it to a laboratory. But I can show you around uh, yes, please. Please. in the boat. Uh, we can just go down. Um, so uh, uh, I'm currently in the upper floor. I'll show you. This is the captain uh, navigating uh, <laughs> wow. the, the ship, uh, which uh, very fittingly is called the Silver Star. And um, I'll take you down to the uh, deck. So this is where we eat. Um, oh, that's kind of nice. Here Think we are going seating. down to the deck where we... Yeah, it's a very nice uh, boat. It's uh, made of aluminum, actually. And then uh, what you see here is the, what is called the winch, which is basically a cable that is connected to the, uh, what, the sled. The sled is basically... Here we have a second copy of the sled. It has a an array of magnets uh, on both sides that collect magnetic particles that are magnetized. And they basically attach to it. And as this sled is dragged on the ocean floor, roughly a mile deep, so it's very deep and dark there. And we have also video cameras that take a picture of uh, where we are going on the ocean floor and bring it back to deck. So basically you can see the winch cable going into the ocean. It's Right now it's dark, it's nighttime, um, and the, the sled is now a mile down from where the ship is. And just think about it, we're going about 10 miles on each line that we are surveying, and uh, roughly a mile deep, and we're finding these tiny, tiny spherules that are attached to the magnets that end up uh, in our laboratory and we will analyze them. And uh, if you want to see images of the spheros, um, I'll uh, just go to my um, 
essays at medium.com. I, I can show you also uh, the last two that uh, as of uh, just uh, Mr. half Mr. an hour Mr. ago, I received, uh, we, we were able to identify. So Mr. let Mr. me show you just these images. One second. Okay, this, this is this is fascinating stuff. And just while you're going over to those images, you're saying that because the metal is an the sphere the spheres that you've recovered are alloys. They're combinations of metals that we haven't uh, that are not naturally occurring. That is what the real kind of red flag is here. That they were made and not just um, you know uh, random particles that are crashing into Earth. This is evidence of extraterrestrial life. Right. Fascinating. Yes, uh, we can. Yeah, it's the composition, but we know that it's interstellar. Also, uh, here is another image that is quite beautiful. Can you, you can tilt your camera down a little bit? Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Wow. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Loeb. We really appreciated the time you spent with us. And good luck with your mission. I know there are a lot of folks very interested in this particular issue right now, both because of the people that were lost in the submarine. Um, deep sea exploration is fascinating. And because of the recent reporting about some potential mm -hmm. revelations about UFOs from the government. Thank you again. Thanks for having me, and science can be exciting. <laughs> Indeed. We'd love to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. More Rising right after this. Is Elon Musk going to fight Mark Zuckerberg in a cage match? Is this the weirdest timeline we can all possibly imagine? It started when Musk replied to an article detailing Meta's plan to launch a Twitter competitor called Threads. Now, Musk wrote, quote, I'm sure Earth can't wait to be exclusively under Zuck's thumb with no other options. At least it will be sane. Was worried there for a moment. One user replied to Musk, quote, be careful, Elon. I heard Zuckerberg does the jujitsu now. To which Musk responded, quote, I'm up for a cage match. If he is, LOL. Now, Zuckerberg has responded to Musk and agreed to go head to head in a cage match, <laughs> writing on his Twitter story, quote, send me the location. Uh, I want to see this fight very, very much. Um, Who's your money on? It's on Zuckerberg. Mm. I'm sorry. Like, well, I, okay, I don't have a good idea of the let's, actual let's shape and size of Elon Musk. I don't know. Is he very tall? I don't know. Um, I do remember. I, I know what he looks like. I, I can't picture okay. him All in right. comparison to other people. How guess how tall Zuckerberg is? I think he is tall. I remember five ten, five eleven. I remember seeing a picture of Zuckerberg at a, on like a congressional hearing on, at a congressional hearing sure. with a pillow boosting his height. Oh, he's not that tall. And when I Google it, I confirm that he, the internet says he is 5'7". Now, he is in control of the internet, and we all know the rule of, of short kings is that there tends to be additions to one's height, and that's if you don't have as much influence with right. social media results as Mark Zuckerberg presumably We all does. love a short king, but he does, do, but he has gotten in good shape. I think everybody pictures uh, Jesse Eisenberg from the Social Network movie, who's yeah. got the kind of nerdy... Thing going on, uh -huh. but Zuckerberg, I think, does like CrossFit and stuff. He like I was googling him. He's he's got some arms. Um, he's he's using his fists. Uh, he also doesn't feel pain, right? He's a robot. <laughs> I, 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 I... He is an android. Okay, well, how tall do you think Elon Musk is? Because wingspan matters, know. you know, in these things. I don't know. Elon Musk is six foot one and a half okay. inches tall. Uh, so this is why this is an interesting matchup because Elon is kind of a giant. Okay, but age-wise. 
Elon is 51. Mark Zuckerberg, I believe, is 38. He was a year ahead of me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So maybe not be 39. So that is a clear advantage in terms of potentially stamina. And he does jujitsu. You need some training to be. You can't just like be in a. In a you have to know how to throw a punch. You know how to how to like do your fists a certain way so you don't like hit your thumb when you go to hit somebody because that hurts. I feel like this could be less of like a kind of a cockfight situation mm -hmm. and more of one of those like puppy Super Bowl situations. <laughs> you know where they just do let the them all on the, the field. I don't and usually watch around. the Super Bowl. Do they make the puppies fight to the death? <laughs> I, mean, puppy, I mean, I think it could just be too ineffectual. People I would like them, flailing at each other. I would like them to use um, swords. Uh, then, then we're getting more into my interest. Okay, but, but that's an interesting. While point. you are building a social media site, I studied the blade. <laughs> Robbie, I think you raise an interesting point, which is why are they choosing to fight in an arena where neither of them has any real expertise? They're two tech giants. Why isn't this a technical competition? I oh, mean, like a coding? Yeah, off? a coding war, or at least play a video game or something. Yeah, they should play Call of Duty or something. Now, in that matchup, I definitely put my money behind uh, Zuckerberg because we know that he He's did, a in fact, game build. Person too. Well, no, he built. He built his company from the ground up. He was a sophomore in college who made an app using his brain. We know that he can code and do things. Elon Musk has a reputation of having money and buying companies yeah. and then taking responsibility for I'm pretty sure what Zuckerberg does in his free success. time is like watch speed runs of video games, which is also something I do in my spare time. <laughs> so maybe I'm just more partial to Zuckerberg. Well, maybe we should talk just for a second about the underlying issue here. Elon Musk is mad about having a competitor. We saw this happen. This is why we don't have any more Twitter files. It was because he got so mad at Matt Taibbi for using Substack, and Substack was innovating some new aspect of their interface that he saw as competitive with Twitter. So he shut down this all-important, I think genuinely important journalistic enterprise because of his personal frustration with Matt Taibbi for using a site that he perceives to be competitive with his own. Now, he characterized Mark Zuckerberg and Meta as being all-encompassing, like like somehow, you know, what did he say in, in the tweet that we initially read that you know I'm, I'm sure it'll be I'm sure everything will be sane when the whole world is basically run by Mark Zuckerberg and Meta. That seems to be a kind of an interesting critique mm -hmm. to make of Mark Zuckerberg when it when you are very much in aspiring, that same, and, aspiring, and aspiring the same, the same thing. exact thing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah. Look, they're, I mean, they're, look, they're tech rivals. And that's fine. And and this, like, we're not taking this seriously. Obviously, they they were they have a rivalry. Mm -hmm. it, it, I actually think it's kind of funny that they are engaging back and forth in this way. Um, you know, if Jack Dorsey was to come back into the picture, I think he would win in a fight. Oh, I think that he can just. Meditate I think he could use so hard. his mind. He can, yes, exactly. Psychic. <laughs> yes, we're reaching the same thing. The exactly. psychic. Exactly. So substantively, what do you make of the idea? Do you think that there's space for? Uh, uh, meta to compete in in the Twitter realm. Elon characterized uh, Meta as having stolen mm -hmm. ideas from Instagram and these other companies. I thought that I thought that Meta just bought those other companies, and, and Instagram is Facebook and, and is. all of those kinds of things. But you know. There have been efforts, obviously, since Elon Musk bought Twitter for people to go to Mastodon or some of these other sites that does, don't seem to have been really genuinely competitive. Do you think that Elon has cause to be really worried now that the, one of the biggest players in the game, who already does have an infrastructure sure. that have these overlapping programs that are integrated with each other, if he gets into the Twitter space, should Elon Musk be worried? I mean, Zuckerberg and Facebook consciously made decisions to make their platform less like Twitter um, in a way that 
as I've talked about numerous times on the show, devastated the, the news and journalism industry because for all the attention we pay to Twitter, uh, Facebook always had way more um, users' visits. Uh, in, in the time period where social media was a big part of traffic to news websites, Facebook dwarfed Twitter. It was, it was, it was uh, it, it, much more going on well, it still does. at Facebook. Well, now it's... Now they're basically nothing. Well, no. Both of them. No, are no, 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 no. I mean, no, they still no. have more more users, but they're they're not directing traffic to websites. My point sure. being, because the news feed, the the algorithm on Facebook, doesn't doesn't uh, have a lot of outside links anymore. To, it, it punishes offsite links. And there used to be a lot of conversation that'd be occurring in the comments under there. Honestly, there was probably a time maybe five, seven years ago, where I was probably you know involved in as many conversations about. New, the, the kinds of conversations you, ha you were having on Twitter, at least until like two years ago, yeah. um, that was just as prevalent on Facebook. And it was among more people I actually knew. But then at some point, Facebook decided to deprioritize that on and this concern yeah. it was too nasty and yeah, harmful but it, and toxic. It, it, is, it is worth noting, Facebook has 3 billion people using it monthly. Sure. That means roughly 37% of the world's population are Facebook users. That's more than 200 sure. million businesses use Facebook tools and more than 7 million advertisers. YouTube is next with 2.2 billion users a month, then WhatsApp with 2 billion, Instagram with 2 billion, WeChat 1.26 billion, TikTok 1 billion. Notice we haven't gotten to Twitter yet. Yeah, yeah. Weibo, 573 million, something called QQ, I've never heard of, with half a million. And Telegram, half a million. Snapchat, half a million. I'm still not down to Twitter. I remember reading a stat about yeah, only, oh, here we go. Twitter down here at number 14 with 238 million monthly users. Yeah, it, it, it's always been overemphasized, uh, the importance of Twitter, because it's the preferred social media site of elite policy makers and journalists themselves. Now, I will say, though, you know, counting active users here, I guess I would, under that, under the description, I would count as an active user of Facebook because, like, the photos I post to Instagram are automatically reposted onto Facebook, but I haven't shared a piece of content or made a comment or do anything other than, you know, once a month I might open the app, scroll through it, like a photo of my nieces and nephews, and like that. I'm not using it in any sure, but meaningful it's not or constructive just way. Facebook, it's Instagram. Mark Zuckerberg owns Instagram. Yeah. I use Instagram every single day, and my Instagram posts automatically right. po push to. Facebook. So but is not he going to be able? Sort of but is he going to be able to continue to use that infrastructure, which is unparalleled in people's desire to have integration between these apps, to to push uh, Twitter out and to kind of enter into the market with more of a market share than some of these other Mastodon-type places where you're needing to sign yeah. up for something from scratch, as opposed to saying. Here's a prompt where I, you already have all my information. Let me auto-populate this new universe and have all of the connections with all of my friends and all of the stuff pre-existing. Yeah, I, I think it would be great to see these companies compete for users. A competition would be good and offer the best platform that is user-intuitive and, and lets users have control of their experience in terms of moderation and has commitments maybe to free speech that are actually honest and followed through on. <laughs> compete on all those grounds while offering privacy. Do it all right and be the better you know, experience insight that offers that. That would be great. So I love I, I'm that. loving to see this battle, not just the actual fist fight they might have, <laughs> but the battle to make a better yeah. A uh, race to the top. Insight. Love to see it. That would be great. All right, tomorrow Jessica Burbank and Amber Athey will take the reins for Friday's show. Stay tuned for that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss 
any of this gripping content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, you're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye.